This is Off Script with Trish Close. Intimate interviews and conversations with interesting people. In front of my microphone today is Lee Ayers from SOU. Hello. Hello. And I just learned your title. It's quite big. <laughs> director, sorry, Division Director of Undergraduate Studies. Correct. Okay. That's bigger than, because you, in the capacity that I knew you as a few years ago, was a criminology professor. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's kind of where your heart is. I'll always be a criminology professor. Okay. <laughs> uh, we restructured a few years ago, okay. and we um, eliminated what was known as the dean lines at SOU, and we put in division directors. Okay. So we now have seven divisions, and I happen to oversee the Division of Undergraduate Studies. Awesome. Was that a promotion? You know, <laughs> <laughs> depends on who you ask. Okay. Uh, in some ways, yes, because you are taking on more responsibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, it also means that you don't get the typical faculty breaks like winter break, uh, summer break, but it also gives you the opportunity to, I believe, uh, touch and affect more students with oh. the things that you're doing. Nice. So uh, I always teach uh, mm -hmm. at some point in the year, mm -hmm. which to me keeps that connection mm -hmm. with my criminology heart. <laughs> right. I think you have to have that. Whatever your passion is, if you've sort of drifted from that, you have to find a way to keep that fire burning a little bit. You do. It keeps the bubble in the middle, keeps mm -hmm. you balanced, mm -hmm. and it also, I believe, keeps you uh, connected with the materials. The world of criminal justice changes so rapidly right. that if you step away for too long, uh, you're likely to really feel dated. Okay. Keep the bubble in the middle. I like that. I'm going to remember that. Okay, as I like to start off all of my conversations, where are you from originally, Lee Ayers? I was born in Michigan. Okay. My father worked for Ford Motor Company. And wow. so I lived outside of Detroit. And so when things like Eight Mile are talked about, I know exactly where that is. Of course you do. Uh, but uh, so I, I was there till. Um, the first term of my senior year of high school, and then we relocated. Wow, so Detroit, I don't care how old you are, when you spend those you know, early years somewhere, that's home. That'll always be Absolutely. home. Absolutely. Yeah, so my dad's family's still out that way, and wow. so when I go to a family reunion, I definitely go to Michigan, and uh, I love I love the seasons there. I think it gives yeah. me a love for Oregon for that reason. The, leave cha the leaves change colors. Mm -hmm. And although I don't miss shoveling snow, I get to see it, you know. <laughs> I can go up in the mountains and play in it if I so choose. Okay. But uh, it's definitely a seasonal state. Okay. And so you've been back, obviously, to Detroit. Mm -hmm. How has it changed? Uh, so I was 16 when I left, yeah. and so it's changed remarkably over the years. I would say that one of the things I remember, especially this time of year, about Detroit was they had a store called Hudson's, and in some ways Hudson's was like Macy's. Mm -hmm. uh, it was this beautiful multi-story department store that had... Uh, one of those cafeterias on the top floor that you would go up and, and mm. choose things for lunch and they would do this uh, ball of ice cream with uh, Oreo ears that look like Mickey Mouse, you know, things like that Fun. that are really good memories. Okay. But they would also decorate the whole store. It mm. was really geared toward uh, that time of magic of thinking about looking in storefront windows and mm. every time the elevator door would open it would be something new and magical. Okay. So I remember Hudson's quite uh, vividly. It's gone. 
you know, it just doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So I would say that um, when I left Michigan, it was during the time of the auto auto industry really shifting and changing and mm -hmm. uh, some downsides going on with the economy. And so people not necessarily working that at one time were blue collar workers. And uh, my father had died when I was pretty young. And so he had already gone. But even the large plant for Ford Motor Company where he had worked was closed and gone. Wow. And so it affected so many people's lives in the way that that area was viewed right. that uh, I would say now it's changed, it's shifted. Mm -hmm. uh, Detroit itself, uh, the law enforcement has really cleaned it up. Seems like a safer place to be than how I felt about it when I was younger. But some okay. of that could be the perspective of growing up and looking at it with a different set of lenses. For sure, yeah. We always, I think, especially I remember the house I grew up in, my bedroom seemed huge to me. Uh -huh. And I know it probably wasn't, I was just little. <laughs> I was mm -hmm. tiny and it just seemed ginormous. And I think when you look back as an adult, you're, it just everything is sort of, you look at it differently. It's so funny you should say that. I can remember walking down the street where I grew up. We lived in a house on a corner, mm -hmm. and we were there from the time I was born until the end of sixth grade. And looking at this house, and we had three kids in the family, and we all shared a bedroom. We had okay. one bathroom. Wow. So it was a tiny house uh, with a detached garage, but um, it it didn't feel as tiny as it was. It's about a thousand square feet. Wow. And so in today's world, that seems really tight. And mm -hmm. uh, But I can remember as a kid, you know, it's just that you had the stairs and you had yeah. things that made it feel like you were surrounded by this thing that would protect you. And it was a brick house. And so uh, it was a huff and puff and it wouldn't blow down. Of course. Yeah. Well, that was your shelter. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. But there were houses on that street that I absolutely thought were mansions. And mm -hmm. in, in perspective. I've probably lived in houses larger than them. I know. It's kind of wild to think about. So you grew up with siblings then? I did. I have an older sister and I have a younger brother. Okay. And one bathroom you guys shared. We did. So cool. my sister's almost seven years older than me. So it probably worked out because by the time mm -hmm. she was uh, spending more time in the bathroom, I hadn't mm -hmm. discovered that you needed to do that yet. <laughs> <laughs> and my brother's three and a half years younger. And so he was always easy going. Okay. So you left Michigan, you said in your senior year, right mm -hmm. before your senior year? It was during my senior year. I skipped my junior year. So I was 16. I was in Michigan. My mom had taken, um, well, she had moved to San Diego and then she took ill. So I oh, moved okay. down there to be with my brothers so they wouldn't move him into protective custody Aww, and keep okay. him at home. So you, smarty pants, skipped <laughs> junior year because you were just progress it, progressing so well? I, I would think it was part of that. I also believe that my counselors really believed that I would do well to uh, move past my family. And so gotcha. it was one of those things. I think we see that um, throughout life where sometimes uh, – it's believed by adults that the best thing you can do is go on to school, go on to college, or find something else, but mm -hmm. find that cohesiveness. After my father died, my family really flailed, yeah. and he was the glue, mm -hmm. and the glue was gone, and it wasn't such a, a great experience. Did your mom move to California after he passed? She did. So it was about four years after. Okay. Um, she had gone through some ups and downs, but she really struggled, and now they're both gone. And so now I, I can really say that she probably had a lot of psychological things going on. Mm -hmm. uh, she spent a good chunk of her upbringing in what we would refer to as an orphanage. Uh, her mom wow. had contracted TB, and she was uh, put into solitary confinement. The kids were put into protective custody. She had um, two little brothers that died of polio in the orphanage. I mean, it's just a tragic story when you think about uh, what she had gone through. And I think her whole life, that plagued her. 
And so she really struggled with some things that uh, older, more educated, mm-hmm. I can look at and not think, you know, get up and go to work and do something to provide for your family yeah. as much as, wow. Right. And you never got help. You right. Know, you didn't work through that. So. You know, it's amazing. You, you just sort of hit on it. It's amazing to look back at what the tragedies some people have been through, and they still manage to put one foot in front of the oh, other. Yeah. I mean, maybe not the most successful, you know, one foot in front of the other, mm-hmm. but they still were getting up every day mm-hmm. and just going about their business. And you don't even realize all of these things that happened to them in the past. Oh, yeah. And she had some phenomenal moments during uh, Hurricane Camille, which happened in the late uh, 60s. She received a humanitarian award from Richard Nixon because of all the work she did through Girl Scouting and getting things to the people where you had to organize trucks and do these. She took over a fire station and she just really managed to do some phenomenal things. But it was on again, off again, on again, off right. again. So sometimes the lights were on and things were really progressing and mm-hmm. things were solid. Mm-hmm. And other times it just was, hello, are you in there? Right. And it was, it's tough to watch. And I think as an adult, you probably, like you just said, really realized the tragedy she went mm-hmm. through. And it's kind of like, okay, it yeah. makes a little bit more sense. You forgive them. Because well, yeah. you, you, you realize yeah, that for sure. this this was a struggle that it, when you put it into perspective, wow, you mm-hmm. really did well. So when she passed away, how old was your little brother? Um, she passed away in 2002. Okay. So he was all grown up. Oh, okay. No, when she, so she got sick then and because you wanted to make sure he wasn't put yeah. into protective custody? She had a massive heart attack. Wow. And okay. so it was a really big deal. So I went down to San Diego and I was there and finished high school there. And gotcha. um, my brother and she went back to Michigan, mm-hmm. and I stayed on. I was actually going to go in the Marine Corps. Kind of an interesting story. So I decided I'm going in. She had signed off. I was waiting to turn 17 so that I could um, oh my goodness. Uh, to, could join, but I could never make weight. I was a chunky kid. And so I kept trying, and I was working out at MCRD and running and doing all of these things, trying to make weight, and I couldn't make weight, so I decided to go to college. So when you said make weight, I was thinking the opposite. I was like, you weren't big enough. No. Because you're like teeny tiny. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I was um, someone who struggled uh, considerably for my height. I had to be a certain weight. Gotcha. Uh, they also do some um, body uh, mass things now Mm -hmm. where they might say, okay, how much fat are you really carrying and how much muscle do you have? But back then it was like, you get on the scale and you weigh a certain amount and based on your height, you're either in or you're out. And I just, I couldn't make weight. So so. Marine Corps was out. Marine Corps was out. College was next. Where did you go to school? So I started, um, I went to Miramar College, uh, Miramar people usually have heard of because of Top Gun. I was just going to say that, yes, Top Gun. Top Gun. And so uh, I spent two years there studying. I have an associate degree in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I kind of had some instructors that saw me. So when we think about professors that see something Mm -hmm. in you that you may not Mm -hmm. see, uh, they really said, you know, you need to go on. You shouldn't stop here. You need to really consider that four-year degree. And uh, so they put my name forward for a scholarship, and I received a scholarship to go to National University. Wow. And so I, I kind of smile because people say, well, how much did it cost for you to go to school? And so the first couple years, Miramar is only $45 a credit hour now. I don't remember struggling to pay tuition back then. And wow. so I would say, you know, back in the day when dirt was new and I was young and community <laughs> college was free, and we're seeing some of that again, right? Yeah. We're seeing folks really trying to get a hold of how we've spiraled 
spiraled out of control with the costs. Oh my, it's insane. It's been a, a severe cost shift. So when we think about the three big budgets in the state, we have healthcare, we have education, and mm -hmm. we have the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what we've done with the school aspect, especially with the building of prisons mm -hmm. uh, in the last couple decades, is we've shifted the cost. We've said, okay, you can get a student loan to go to college, and so we're going to let you do that, and the state's going to pull back a little bit to cover the other expenses. So when I started at SOU 21 years ago, mm -hmm. it it was more of a split of looking at about 75% by the state, 25, you know, 30% by the student. That's sure. completely shifted. It's about 28% yeah. state and the rest is student and family. And that can be really devastating for folks who are still somewhat recovering from a great recession, mm -hmm. who uh, hadn't planned on this 20 years ago, thinking that, okay, if my no. kid goes to a state school, I've been paying taxes, I'm productive. I can afford it. I can afford it. Oregon's done some great things. We've got the Oregon Promise. And mm -hmm. so they can go on to community college like I did and, and make some pathways that are a little bit different, get a good right. solid start, and then have more to pay toward the finish. So we have uh, some programs called Promise to Promise, where it's like a two plus two program, two mm -hmm. years there, two years at the higher uh, education institution. And many folks are on board, you know, U of O, OSU, PSU, the bigs, as well as the uh, regionals. we got to start somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you, did you want to be a cop? Going into like, because I mean, law enforcement. So was that like a on thing? the horizon? Yeah, I went in originally thinking I'd go to law school. Okay. And uh, a little bit into uh, studying, I had an opportunity to go to work as a San Diego district police officer. And so it was a shift for me, but it, it also mm -hmm. put me in uniform, put me through the academy, gave me a paycheck, uh, gave me money toward books. Mm -hmm. And because I wasn't 21, I was able to get clearance to wear uniform carry handgun. And wow. so I had to go before board to do that. And um, so I was able to start pretty early doing some things that were phenomenal. Patrol can be pretty scary, yeah. you know, and- You're how old? <laughs> now? That's no. a really personal question. No, no. <laughs> when you were patrolling the streets in San Diego. Oh, yeah, I was over 18, so. Okay. Still. Still, yeah, still kind of, I think about it now. You, you think about being a baby, right? Right. Yeah, so no, I, I was, I was right for the job at the time, and I think that I was able to prove that through oh, awesome. the capacity of the things that I had done. But um, it was a phenomenal experience, and I don't regret it, because mm -hmm. there are things that you learn by walking in the shoes that you can't learn from the textbooks. And mm -hmm. that was one of the reasons we created the lock-in event at SOU. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was when I was 18 and my mom dropped me off at college, I was crying running after the van. Uh -huh. So that's just, that was me at 18. <laughs> You're, you're carrying a handgun and, and mm. keeping the streets safer. So you decide to, you get the scholarship. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what comes next after that? So I finished my bachelor's degree in uh, public administration, and uh, I was pretty much done. I got married. My children's father is an orthopedic surgeon. He was in the Navy and so followed his career for a little bit. Okay. And um, then decided to go back to school. I did a master's in education, started teaching in K through 12. When, and we lived in Okinawa. I mean, my daughter was born there. So I had a six-week-old baby that was born in, in Oakland, California. And we, you know, get on the plane and go to Okinawa for three years. And my daughter was born there, and I came back 36 weeks pregnant. I always teased uh, Vic that 
during med school, they must have skipped mm -hmm. that section of how <laughs> babies come into the world or something <laughs> like that. But uh, I, I, I take a deep breath. Three and three years, not necessarily something you recommend to people, but I always would tease people, if you want your children to wait to have children, let them babysit for me. <laughs> okay. All right. So you had three babies in three years. Mm -hmm. Goodness. Mm -hmm. that was a, it's a lot of energy. Overnight the family. Yeah. yeah. So from diaper bags back to book bags. Yeah. And uh, I, I wouldn't change any of it. Phenomenal. Did you take a break at that time or were you still working and going to school and doing stuff? I went back to school when we went through our divorce, okay. and so I was teaching uh, at a private Christian school and going to school for my master's in education. I enjoyed that aspect of it, so the kids were in school at that point, and mm -hmm. so we'd all go to school together, and we'd all come home together, and we'd be at the dining room table doing homework together, that's so awesome, it was a, a family actually. affair. Well, that's pretty awesome. And uh, so I think that they respected that. For sure. Yeah. Um, you went back to school when you went through your divorce. Was that something because you were going through this transition, you were like, that's it, I want to go back to school? Or had you always planned to go back to school? I hadn't always planned to go back to school. For me, it was one of those things where I knew I wouldn't go back to law enforcement. I didn't mm -hmm. think it was fair to them. Uh, yeah. Their father's a surgeon. He works uh, extensive hours. He's really married to his career. And I felt like I needed to be there and present for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, kids make choices, and so we had been divorced a few years. I was uh, done with my uh, teaching certification in my master's program and teaching in in a school when they did, two of them decided to go live with dad, and okay. one stayed with me, and we did the whole trading thing for a period of time, and kids moved around. But uh, it was a, a time period that when the two of them decided to go live with dad, I decided, you know, I'm going to go for my doctorate. Why not? Wow. And so I did. What was that when they when they came to you and said, hey, we want to go live with dad? Was that a little heartbreaking? You know, I really, really tried to be one of those parents that never put myself before their relationship with their mm -hmm. dad. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was, it was tough in the sense that you don't want to give up those years with them or just make it a weekend event or depending on how right. far apart you are, sure. you know, big holidays. But I also knew that because of his commitment to his work, if they weren't physically there and present, they didn't get to see much of him mm -hmm. or they worry does he think about me does he know I'm here and my personality is so different you know mm -hmm. I call three or four times a week hey what right. you doing right, right. and so I think it was um, easier for them to know that I was there and I loved them and cared about them and I would always be there you weren't going anywhere nope right yeah they could call me anytime mm -hmm. but it was a little bit different when someone's um, approach to life is different yeah and I also think too you know my parents were divorced I have a stepson. I feel like sometimes you have to let the kiddos sort of make their own decisions mm -hmm. when, especially when they're sort of growing up and they're teenage, they're teenagers and, you know, they, their parents are divorced and it's, I want to live with dad now, or I'm going to go back and live with mom. And you have to gauge it and you have to kind of watch it. But at the mm -hmm. same time, maybe let them make their own decisions and figure yeah. things out on their own. Because I think sometimes they'll, they'll make the right decision in the end. I agree. And I also believe that it's something that you hope they can live with. I think my exposure right. to my father dying when I was so young has always put me into a position in life where I feel like you want to live every day of your life as if there isn't a tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And you always want people to know where you stand. Mm -hmm. So you never go to bed angry. You don't say something you can't take back, those type of things. And with them, they always knew where I stood. Mm -hmm. And it was... Um, it, 
I think it made for a healthy relationship, but it also gave them some options to decide uh, how to have a relationship with their father that mm-hmm. I couldn't necessarily carve out for them. Absolutely. Do you think it was also one of those things? They knew where you were. They knew where you stood. So mom, we didn't really have to worry about mom. Mm. Dad was one of those things. I'm not sure where I stand with him. Yeah. I I don't, I I would never say that he wasn't dependable in the sense that he always provided for them. Of course. But there was this aspect of you just never knew where you stood. Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely get that. And you're, it's interesting too, the people that you know that they have your back. Sometimes we can be pretty nasty with them mm-hmm. because they love us yeah. unconditionally. Mm-hmm. And the others, we kind of, you know, when we don't know where we stand with them, it's a little bit more of a, um, we think kind of they they hung the moon in a mm-hmm. sense. But I see that a lot and I do it myself, even with my mom. I know she's, she's the most amazing woman, but sometimes I can be nastier to her than anyone mm-hmm. else because I know she's not gonna go anywhere. Sorry, yeah. mama, I love you. <laughs> It's funny, you can take that risk, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, you're having this awful day and you could take it out on someone you know that really knows you yep. and, and knows your heart. Right. And, and, and we'll never say, what what's wrong with that person? Right. Uh, yeah, it's true. And then later you kick yourself when you go, they are the most wonderful person to mm-hmm. me all the time. Why am I so awful to them when I'm having a bad day? But we do it all, we do it to everybody all the time. I, I think some of that comes with growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can remember being kind of feisty with my mom when I was in high school <laughs> and really, you know, pushy. And mm-hmm. uh, But then there there came that time where all of a sudden I understood her so much differently. And whether it was because of, you know, being married and having children of my own, it was she she didn't seem so far out there. There are yeah. things I definitely wouldn't have done the way she did them. But I, um, I took into account other factors where before it was always, this is the way it needs to be done. And, exactly. you know, you're a teenager and you know everything. <laughs> Right. Oh, of course. And I was one of the feistiest, just awful teenagers. So again, Mama, I'm so sorry. So what brought you up to Ashland then, to Oregon? Sure. So um, during this time, when we came back from Okinawa, we lived in Lincoln City. My youngest son was born there. And then we moved to Texas to be closer to my family. Um, The the kids, we were still married at that time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was one of those things where we divorced in Texas. I went back to school in Texas. I was teaching in Texas. And there was this opportunity. Um, I had made friends here and knew quite a few people in Oregon. And uh, Ashlyn had an opportunity for me to come in and take my law enforcement background, marry it to my educational background, and to become, they were looking for a coordinator to work with folks who were already in the field of criminal justice, but who hadn't completed a degree. So they were starting a degree completion program, and they really wanted someone who could, you know, connect with people working in the field. So someone who had some field experience. That sounds right up your alley. It was. I was so fortunate. So in 1998, we moved here. And at that time, my youngest son came with me, and we were living across the street from Bellevue, and he started school at um, uh, Bellevue Elementary, and I was at SOU. How fun. It was really fun. And the other two were with Dad at this point? They were with Dad. Um, When Carl hit high school, he moved here, and by that time I was in Medford, so he went to South, and my youngest went to South. Carly, my daughter, always stayed with Dad. Okay. And so she graduated from Mendocino High School. All right. So you're working at SOU, Mm -hmm. and this is in, you said, 98? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So SOU, oh my goodness, has changed so much. It has. But what was it like? In 1998, I mean, first of all, you're living in Ashland. 
The campus is stunning. I mean, so what was it like working at SOU in 98? I, you know, it's interesting because some of the Texas high schools have 5,000 students. And so Texas is huge. They, you know, everything's bigger in Texas, wow. right? 5,000 <laughs> so, students. So when you think about coming to a campus the size mm -hmm. of SOU, it was perfect. Good. You know, it was a way to do higher ed. They've, they've been very deliberate and controlling about the numbers. They want the intimate relationships. As a professor, mm -hmm. you're going to know your students. You're going to know them by name. You're going to uh, have that connection with them that it, some of the larger schools is really difficult just because of the numbers factor. Mm -hmm. So it gave me that opportunity to come into something that was, uh, I would say, ready for me in that sense that they uh -huh. were starting this degree completion program. I mean, Mike Boudreaux was my first advisee. Nah. And so <laughs> it's true. And so I think about that aspect of just the people that I've met, whether it was, you know, Chris, Chris Allison, you know, some of the folks who are in law enforcement today that are phenomenal leaders, and they've been part of our program. Uh, Captain Penlin, you know, I, I think of these folks and, and even uh, Nate Sickler, he was in my, one of my first classes at SOU. And now he's our sheriff. And now he's the sheriff. So I was just going to ask you, what are some of the success stories that you've oh, yeah. seen? Because I'm sure as a professor, you have these students that as they saw in you, mm -hmm. that kid's going somewhere. They're oh, going to do something. So what are some of the success stories? That oh, we've had? had students go into the FBI, go into Homeland Security, go on to law school that are practicing today. Uh, I think that SOU has a program that over the years has really become a success story because of the way it's able to reach students. Mm -hmm. and, and I think of myself, and I didn't come from that upper middle class background that had so many you know shiny objects in front of me. It was one of those, well, I think I should go to school. My sister didn't go to college. My brother dropped out of school in eighth grade and has never gone back. Mm -hmm. And so just looking at this aspect of what education can do for you and what we're hoping to do with some of you know, the poverty relief in this country, education's a gateway. Mm -hmm. And I tell students all the time, they can take away your car, they can take away your house, they can take away a lot of things. They cannot take away your education. So when we think about what it'll do for you and how it's a key to so many doors, it's mm -hmm. so worth the experience, as well as some of the financial aspects. And there's a smart way to do it. Yeah. And so let's get smart about the way to do it. You know, even in today's world, my husband will tease me because I clip coupons. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, here's my coupons. You know, we're going to Fred's. Right, right. <laughs> and so there's this aspect of um, that's just who I am. Uh -huh. You know, I, I will always be one of these people that that think about how you have to reserve and save and be prepared for whatever's thrown at you. Mm. And education can help you for those curveballs. No doubt. And I just, the idea that you, you know, Lieutenant Boudreaux and Sheriff Sickler, I mean, absolutely, these guys were going into something and now they are as you mentioned, leaders in our mm -hmm. community. Absolutely. We've produced so many leaders out of SOU, and I think it's because of the people who are there, the amount of time they'll give individuals, and we help them blossom. Mm -hmm. I, we really do. I have seen students over the years, whether they do a three-year, four-year, five-year, or six-year program, or some of them you're getting hired and taking a, mm -hmm. a stop out and coming back in and completing, uh, they come back ready and will we'll cultivate what they need to be successful. And they're an individual. It's not, well, this is the path, and this is what you do and this is how you do it right it's very much so can be tailored and customized to really meeting their needs for the things they need to improve and grow with that's so awesome is it feel good though to see those success stories and know that you had 
a piece of that? It does. And so um, it, it's kind of interesting. I can remember in my doctoral work, I actually have two doctorates. I have one in criminal justice and one in instructional technology. Now you're just bragging. It, it's not so much. It's just <laughs> different. It's a pathway. I always um, loved school. And my sister teases mm -hmm. me that the reason I stayed in school so long and did so much is that um, it allowed me to be successful. Mm -hmm. It was where I found that uh, pat on the back and like, wow, this is a good mm -hmm. job because you don't always, um, it, it's different in, in the world of work. You know, for me, successes don't come from saying, hey, Ayers, that was great. You know, what mm -hmm. were you thinking when you did that? As much as watching your work move forward. And mm -hmm. so you feel like you had a little personal part, whether it was um, helping someone to complete for me now in my role, their general education, so they could, you know, get into the degree yep. or that first year program, that hurdle of the emancipation process of leaving home mm -hmm. <laughs> and living in the res halls mm -hmm. or some of our local programs, our Jack Joe Pledge program for Jackson and Josephine County students coming and starting uh, on a, a fast path at $110 a credit hour, which is what it is at RCC. So how do we get them in, let them live at home, get them to their degree, and keep it affordable, right. and take advantage of the university that's in your backyard? And sometimes that's hard. You know, sometimes we spend our whole youth thinking about, I can't wait to get out of here. And then I we know. spend a good portion of our life thinking, I can't wait to go home. Right. <laughs> well, and I'm sure for you, it's probably heartbreaking to see, you know, those whatever 18, 19, 20 year olds who maybe don't necessarily want to go back to school, but don't really have anything else to do and mm -hmm. going on. And the only thing that's keeping them from getting an education is mm -hmm. money. Yeah, you know, T Chief George and I used to talk about this quite a bit because he, w he would say, what's happening with this population that wants to sit at home, stay at home and play video games? Mm -hmm. And they're done with high school and, you know, what's next for them? And I think about the aspect of what what do you do when you're not sure what you want to do? And what are those mm. transferable skills that, you know, what should I do my degree in? And right. it shouldn't necessarily be pre-med if you're not going on to medical school. It should definitely be something that will give you a skill set that will make you very employable. And sometimes you know, folks will say, well, what does that four-year degree do? Well, it gets you to stand up. You know, first of all, you want them to show up. And so sometimes mm -hmm. just having attendance policies, they learn. You show up, and that transfers directly to the workplace. Absolutely. Standing up for the things that you believe in. You know, and, and by standing up, you get to speak up. And by speaking up, uh, you have an opportunity to put in that passion and, and to research and decide, uh, let's put this under the microscope. Let's understand both sides of the arguments. And I mm -hmm. think that's one of the things that's become very polarized in today's political uh, landscape is understanding both sides and then coming up through critical thinking with an opinion for yourself versus where someone wants you to go. And sometimes you end up down a rabbit hole, and that's not where you want students to be trapped. So getting them to look holistically at things and understand things from outside of themselves nice. and that's a big growth period and then the last thing with the four S's is learning when to shut up you know sometimes you need to learn to listen and much like we were talking about those teenagers that think they know everything sometimes you just need to listen to understand mm -hmm. that maybe you're going to have that aha moment where something clicks mm -hmm. and it's like oh my gosh I never thought of that mm -hmm. I never thought of that and then things take on a different perspective the shutting up has been a hard lesson for me. <laughs> I was in college, I was in, doing an internship and not even a, anything for what I'm doing right now. And my mentor at this internship, she's from Texas, I called her Tia Maria, Aunt, Aunt Maria, because she was just so awesome. And she told me, you know, you are always going to be in the spotlight just mm -hmm. because of your personality, but sometimes you need to let other people be in the spotlight. And I take that as like, sometimes you just need to shut up. 
and mm-hmm. listen because you're always going to demand the spotlight. But when you let other people be in the spotlight, that's when you really listen and you learn. Mm-hmm. And I've never forgotten that. And she's absolutely right. And so I think for a lot of us, shutting up is a hard lesson. It is. To figure out. But just everybody keep quiet. Uh, we're going to wrap up and get to the final three. But I do want to ask you about the lock-in because yeah. that was something you created and, and really for these students. And tell, just go ahead and tell me about it. Sure. So in, in 2000, I sat down with the criminology club we had just reformed. And I said, you know, one of the things that I absolutely loved about my college experience, especially at Miramar, is we had a shooting range. I had defensive tactics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really started to understand some of the aspects of what it would take to be in law enforcement. And so I reached out to some of the agencies. We had students, of course, in many of the agencies through the degree completion program. But so what would it take to really put this together Mm -hmm. and to um, bring things to the students, break them up into small groups, let them experience this thing? And we've we've done it in various stages. So the first lock-in really started at at the middle of the night, went all through the night into the next day. (laughs) As I got older, I decided that wasn't a good (laughs) idea. But we had everyone involved. You know, we had we had folks involved from the DA's office. We had folks hmm. involved from uh, Oregon State Police Department, folks involved from Portland Police Bureau, all the way up the highway. So lots of folks there uh, came in, gave them this wonderful simulation, and they got to see, is this something that I'm going to want to do? You know, simulating a SWAT yeah. scenario with a, a shooting in the basement at Taylor Hall, and is this right. something that I'm even capable of doing? And then, of course, as we progressed and went into some of the footage, you know, what you said to someone, gosh, you know, you completely expelled your your weapon. It's I never shot. It's like, let's watch the footage. And then Mm. for them to see, oh my gosh, this person jumped out of a closet and I didn't even know who they were, but it scared me so much. I shot them. (laughs) Multiple times. (laughs) And so you think of this aspect of what is it like when your heart's pounding, the adrenaline's there, and you have to rely on your training. And that's why training becomes so important. And Mm. when we think about um, Dr. David Grossman, who's also been here locally speaking a couple different times, that aspect of you train, you train, you train to the point where it's just, you know, stop, drop, and roll. That's what you do because you've trained. You're yeah. prepared for it. You don't have to rely on, now, what am I supposed to do? It's second nature. That frontal lobe shuts down, middle lobe, you know, kicks mm-hmm. in, and you're ready to go. And I'm sure a lot of those students after that lock-in were like, yep, sign me up, or nope, I'm out of here. Exactly. I'm going to go get an English degree. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad degree either. <laughs> I know, not at all. All right, Lee Ayers, final three, best advice you've ever been given? Stay in school. Absolutely. Think think of yourself as someone um, who, by going to school, you'll have those keys to the next doors. And I really feel through my education, it's made me a different type of contributor. And I'm there for people in a different way than I would be able to be there had I not done school. Interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, Smarty Pants, the division (laughs) director of undergraduate studies, I mean, you've actually really taken that best advice. Well, I, I like to live into it, mm-hmm. and it's given me opportunities, whether it's being part of the Higher Education Coordinating mm-hmm. Commission or the Criminal Justice Commission here in the state, some of those policy agencies where yeah. you can really make change. Uh, that has allowed me to do that. That impacts people. It's mm-hmm. not just about me. That's amazing, giving back a little bit. Um, if you ever left this place, what would you miss the most? What would bring you back? I would absolutely miss the beauty 
uh, coming from Texas, because I did come to uh, Oregon from Texas, uh, it's flat. You drive people around shown buildings because they're beautiful. You have this beautiful right. architecture. But the land itself isn't uh, naturally, in many situations, beautiful and just calling. Uh, I have yet to be in many areas of Oregon where you just don't have to stop and say, oh, my gosh, look at this place. So naturally, it is mm -hmm. so beautiful. And the people here are incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very much so a people who go after making a difference. And I think Oregon isn't ashamed or um, not very proud of being the ones that beat their own drum. So true. I love that. Um, and then my favorite question, final meal, final drink, what would that look like? That's so interesting because in my world, you know, this is often people on death row and, and not every state, you know, has death row anymore, but right. not all of them contribute to a final meal. So, uh, you know, biblically it was a big thing. And then, of course, it became superstitious where uh, if you didn't give them something good, they might haunt you. <laughs> so you wanted to give them a good meal. Yeah, I agree. I think for me it is so funny. I am such a pizza person. I, I, I would definitely say let's do something, you know, Chicago-style pizza and maybe some good wine and just go out with lots of carbs, lots <laughs> of fat, <laughs> and some good alcohol. All right, perfect. <laughs> some good carbs and a good bottle of wine. All right, Lee Ayers, if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We can also be found now on Google Play. You can check out the video portion of this podcast on ktvl.com. Just click on Features and then Off Script. Lee Ayers, once again, SOU is very lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. So is Southern Oregon. Thank you for being here.